This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. Hi, I'm Mike Bush. I'm Paul New. And I'm Colleen Sterling. Welcome to Ask the AMPs from AOPA. On Ask the AMPs, we try to answer your toughest maintenance questions and to have a little fun in the process. So if you have a question, reach us at podcasts at aopa.org. And if you like the show, make sure to follow or subscribe so you never miss an episode. And if you'd like to get on our email list to receive our monthly newsletter and weekly aircraft maintenance stories, simply text the word SAVVY, that's S-A-V-V-Y, to 33777, and our text bot will ask you for your email address and add you to the list. Again, text the word SAVVY to 33777 to put yourself on our list. And before we start today, I've got a quick announcement. We're doing our first live show this year at Oshkosh. We'll be at the AOPA tent along the flight line on Tuesday at 11 in the morning. Please come join us and see the show live. We'd love to meet you. All right, Mike, tell us about your wonderful maintenance action on the ramp and your last trip. I'd like to hear about these uh, impromptu events. Well, that was that was kind of fun. I, I um, flew my uh, Cessna 310 to Indiana for Memorial Day weekend, and uh, I just finished up the annual inspection on the airplane. This was my first significant trip since the annual. And one of the things that happened at the annual was that I, I sent out all four magnetos. This is a twin, so it's got four magnetos for a 500-hour IRAN, and they came back all pretty and painted and stuff and put them on the airplane and got them timed and everything. And about a half an hour from my destination, I got a an alarm from my engine monitor that indicated high turbine inlet temperature on the left engine. And uh, I did a little quick troubleshooting and determined that it wasn't a spark plug it was the whole magneto that had just packed up the left magneto and the left engine had had quit so i got out of the airplane went in and asked to whether there was any maintenance on the field and was told no there isn't <laughs> so I, it was here so it's memorial day weekend i've got an airplane with a dead mag and i'm on my own <laughs> fortunately uh, a colleague of mine who, who lives in bloomington indiana was was going to be coming down to, to meet with me uh, on business that weekend anyway. And um, so I called him and I said, would you stuff a bunch of tools in your trunk before you come down? 
and uh, and he did and he he scraped up a buzz box and 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 some tools and so saturday between the two of us we 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 changed the mag out on the tarmac and verified the new mag was working fine so i'm waiting for the punchline on this story i i just would never do all do four, all four mags, mags at, at one time. Yeah, I, I don't even you've like me this lecture, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> Plus the expense. Paul, I, you got. I, I think you just one came mag up times with the four. I think you just came up with the answer to this quandary of mine. That, that clearly the mags were done on a Friday. That that, that explains everything. <laughs> <It could be. laughs> yeah. Somebody's thinking about something else. Well, I would I would never lump all my expenses into one maintenance issue like that. I would I would stretch them out. You know, I would stagger them so that the hurt doesn't come, the, the hurt to my wallet doesn't come all at once. The financial hurt versus yeah. the uh, infant mortality hurt. Yeah. Yeah. So so you're, Colleen, if I understand it right, you're one of these people who peel the bandage off slowly, but <laughs> ripping it off quickly. Huh? <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Our next question is from Jerry, who's wondering what normal looks like and how to get there. Go ahead, Jerry. Okay, thank you very much for having me. And um, I have an issue with uh, experimental. I have an experimental RV4, which I work on, but I did not build. I installed a new engine last year and put two new EMAGs in. And uh, But I kept the old alternator, which is a 30-amp Nippendenzel alternator with the auto regulator that was on it. And uh, a strange thing happened uh, because uh, even though I have a new battery in it, an Odyssey P680, which is used frequently in a lot of these home builds. And uh, when I start the engine and then turn the alternator on, the amperage shoots off the scale and then in about three or four seconds come right back to normal. So what I did now was I, you know, after hearing your last couple podcasts that you said it really doesn't matter whether you have the alternator on first or not when you start i turn the alternate i turn the master on and before i start i turn the alternator switch on and it shows and it shoots off the scale <laughs> it comes right back to uh, normal and then uh when i fly though there's absolutely no issues after that so i've got about 80 hours on this new engine now and uh it only happened after I installed the engine. Uh, so I don't really know what is causing that or is that going to be causing some lasting damage when it does something like that. Jerry, I, I need a little clarification on the last thing you said. You said you, you tried turning the alternator on before starting. Correct. I would turn the master on. And then you said it's st it still shut off the scale. But when did it shoot off the scale? When you turned it on even with the engine not running? Correct. Okay. Well, so so it's so it's a it's a, it's got to be a bogus indication because yeah. the if the engine isn't running and the alternator isn't turning, it can't possibly be producing current. So the, the, it has to it has to be an indication problem, Jerry. It can't be a real problem. If 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 I understand the symptoms that you're describing, can this possibly be an indicator of a regulator issue? Or uh, I know I checked all the. I checked all the connections, made sure all the connections were all tight. Okay, tell me a little bit about the ammeter that you are using to to get this this indication. 
How is the ammeter set up? Is it a battery ammeter? Is it a, a, a zero center that, that indicates either positive or negative? Or is it a load meter that goes from zero to something positive but doesn't register negative? What I have is off of a Dynan Flight Deck 180, which is one of their uh, electronic flight displays. Mm-hmm. And the flight display has a uh, ammeter display, and it's a uh, zero to positive or negative. And uh, I'm not exactly sure how that's hooked up. <laughs> okay, because it, it has to be connected to a shunt someplace. And the question is, where in the system is the shunt that it's connected right. to? Yeah, is it on the battery or the alternator output? Well, the battery, I don't really know, actually. So, yeah, no, I, I don't know how it's connected. I just know I never really touched and, it. And when you say it's an off-scale indication, it's off-scale positive? Correct. It goes to like 99, which is, in other words, it's gone off the scale. Right. It only lasts about three seconds. Okay, well, let's think about this. If <laughs> we're going through the, the tree of possibilities here, if it is a battery ammeter, in other words, if the shunt is, is, uh, is between the battery and the bus, then the only real indication it could possibly have without the engine running is negative. The, the battery can discharge, but it can't charge because there isn't anything to charge it if the alternator isn't turning. So if you were getting a positive indication with a battery ammeter with the alternator not rotating, that that has to be that just has to be a spurious indication. Okay, but it happens every almost every single time. So right. that you wonder how, what kind of spurious indication would cause one to happen every single time. <laughs> well, I I I would I would be inclined to think that this might be a question for Dynon, but if if you call Dynon with it, the first question they're going to have is how did you hook it up? So you you're probably going to have to research where the shunt is that is providing current information to the Dynon to display where it is in the circuit. Okay, that makes but, sense. But it 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 just seems from the symptoms that you're giving that it can't possibly be a harmful thing. It, it it's just it's just a distracting, annoying indication issue of some sort. I was told by uh, a few people I asked around mechanics that said that uh, that could be an indicator of a bad battery. But I I have a brand new battery, so it's hard to. So the. I'll stick in here. The battery acts as a big shock absorber in your electrical system. And so if you do have spikes and you have a weak battery, they can be more pronounced. But I think that this isn't, a, a like Mike's saying, this isn't a real spike, so it's nothing to do with the battery. If, if this was only happening when you turned on the alternator with the engine running, then yes, it could conceivably be an indication of a battery problem. But you... you either intentionally or unintentionally <laughs> did a very important troubleshooting step, which is to try to turn it on without the engine running. You got the same indication. That rules out about 99% of the, of the possible causes. Not the regulator, not the alternator. It's the wiring <laughs> or the dynon, right? Right. Yep. 
Okay, great. Well, thank you very much. And by the way, I, I read every single one of your books. They're in my collection. <laughs> well, well and I, so well, did thank I. You. <laughs> please, 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 please go on Amazon and, and give a review. I, but I appreciate you. you doing that. Thanks, Jerry. Thank you, thank you very much. I appreciate that. it. Okay, Jerry. Thanks. See you, Jerry. Our next question is from Ken, who's looking to do a little spring cleaning. Go ahead, Ken. Hi, team. Thank you for having me. Um, I have a 1984 Mooney 201J uh, that looks pretty good on the outside. But when I take my uh, tail uh, panel off and look on the inside of the tail, uh, it doesn't look so good. Uh, Zinc coating is gradually falling off and coating everything there with yellow particles. uh, the good news is the zinc coating seems to have performed uh, its job, and my AMP can't find any corrosion or any other problems like that. My big problem is it's just not satisfying to look or work in this area. And so my question is, is there a universal flushing-type compound that I can spray on everything that wouldn't harm the batteries and the autopilot servos in the area and uh, clean everything up. Do you have a vacuum, Ken? (laughs) You could, you could suck it up, but it would still peel. I get that part, but um, I would be the first thing I would do is vacuum my tail out. Yeah. You know, the, the, the vacuum doesn't seem to work, Colleen. It, uh, everything is sticking. Oh, wouldn't spraying it with something make it worse yeah it depends on what you spray it with but you could bead blast it but that would no. make a big mess yeah i mean the tail is full of all sorts of equipment and stuff and so you'd, you'd have to like take everything out of there i'm joking i'm joking yeah. i mean that's how you could scotch bright it to get the stuff off and then you'd be vacuuming it up but it sounds like it's it's um sticky or this is what you're saying yeah, sticky flakes on, on it. Uh, I don't want to really take the rest of the zinc coating off because that's there for a purpose. But uh, it sounds like it's coming. It sounds like it's coming off whether you like it or not. Yeah. I, I would suggest the last Mooney that we had was a 78, the first year, the J model. I think it was. Whatever the first year was, we rebuilt forever ago, and my sister flew it in the Air Race Classic in 1978. It's pretty awesome. But back in that tail cone, the biggest problem is getting into it. Well, no, <laughs> getting in is real mooning. easy. It's, it's getting mooning. out. Getting out of it is the hard part. So you, if you're going to climb back in there and clean it out and have someone wrap a rope around your ankle or something, so pull you up. <laughs> but it sounds to me if it's sticky, it's like someone may have sprayed some sort of corrosion inhibitor in there of some sort, maybe LPS3 or something. I don't know. But yeah, you can get in there. It's going to be some hand cleaning. There's no good way. You do have that panel on the side that is somewhat helpful. But, you you know, you've got batteries and servos and all that. So it's just going to take a little mechanical scrubbing, I think, to get it off. And then instead of, I would suggest, instead of trying to prime it again, because you can't really get it that clean for primer to stick. But uh, Corban or Aviate, a thin coat of that will just seal everything off. It's it. They both stick to everything, especially things you don't want them to stick to, like your clothes and your hands and your hair. 
and autopilot servos. So be sure and cover those up. But I think that would be probably the way that I would go. But it's going to require some manual effort. If you know someone that's really small, you can kind of just dump them in there and tell them to be careful and come back a few hours later and drag them out. Yeah, if you're going to spray, if you're going to spray anything in there, it, it's a real good idea to to put baggies around the your servos oh, yeah. and keep them from getting anything on them. Yeah, I tell them if uh, if they go back there and find anything, they can keep it. <laughs> yeah, right. I've found some interesting <laughs> stuff. <laughs> yeah, whatever there. tools you find in the tail of the airplane, they're they're yours. It's <laughs> finders. I'm keepers. talking about better stuff than tools. I always Ooh, imagine yeah. there's some sort of secret compartment on my aircraft that uh, one day I'll find it. And there's going to be all my lost tools in there or something. I always figure I'm going <laughs> yeah. to pull a panel off and find drugs. <laughs> you know, I mean, what do people hide in airplanes? It's kind of like you know, under those. the couch cushion. You lift it up. Yeah. No, you know, everything's everything's possible. Yeah, but, but you know, anyway, I, I think the bottom line here is that we're suggesting that you that you not try to flush it out with any kind of a fluid that you whatever you do do it in a dry process with abrasion and vacuums, or maybe some local spray on cleaners or something that's just in that one spot. They can they can help, but yeah, not a not a flushing that would definitely not be something I'd recommend. Very good, thank you so much. Yeah, well, good luck and enjoy the deep dive. Yeah, remember to leave a a note in case somebody doesn't find you for a couple days. (laughs) Don't know where you are. (laughs) Thanks for the question, Ken. It was fun talking with you. Our next question is from repeat offender Dave, who flies behind a carburetor but wants to cash in on the Lena Peak flow, so to speak. Go ahead, Dave. Thanks, guys. Um, thanks for having me back. Uh, I Not only am I a repeat offender, but I've contributed mightily to the Bush Literary Fund. <laughs> <laughs> if I missed it, uh, I mean, I've read all the books, but maybe I missed it. I drank the Kool-Aid, I believe, in Lane of Peak operation. I fly a 1946 Cessna 140 with a C-85, and I fly a 96 Hats biplane with a Lyco oh. 320 in it. Wow. And both of them are carbureted. Both of them have the most basic of uh, EGT gauges. Can I fly lean of peak? How do I do that? But you you probably already are. (laughs) (laughs) I've heard Mike say, you know, with carbureted engines, you lean it until it stumbles and then you just make it healthy. But I've read in other places that that may put the one of the cylinders, but I guess I'd be the richer cylinder, in the danger zone. So short of putting probes on every stack and getting a rotary switch for my single cylinder gauge, is there a way to get from here to there? Well, of course, you should have an engine monitor, but, but, we, but, <laughs> in his but, hats we, but we won't go there <laughs> today. You're talking about two like uh, two airplanes, one one with a Lycoming, and and uh, one with a what C eighty five, I guess. Uh, uh, C eighty five and a uh, Lycoming three twenty. Now the, the Lycoming three twenties, uh, you know, Lena Peak tends to be more sensitive to uh, mixture maldistribution, where the different cylinders are operating at different mixtures. The Lycoming O three twenty, if it's 
reasonably stock and you haven't put a cold induction system on there or something, it tends to have pretty good mixture distribution right out of the box. And so mo most of the time, people can operate small carbureted light combings, lean a peak without, without too much problem. The, the, the light combing induction system is very symmetrical. Um, and, and so it just inherently tends to provide equal mixtures to all the cylinders pretty close. Probably not as close as you could do with a injected engine with tuned nozzles, but it usually does a pretty good job. And, and no, normally you don't have too much problem operating those engines lean to peak. The carbureted Continentals are worse because they they have they have an induction system that isn't symmetrical. Typically, the carburetor is mounted low and in the rear, and and the uh, the the fuel air mixture then comes from the carburetor, splits into two banks, and and runs forward horizontally from starting with the rear cylinders and going towards the front cylinders. The air doesn't have any problem making those right angle turns up into the cylinders, but but the fuel droplets don't really like to make those turns, so they, they like to go straight. So there's a certain amount of centrifugal separation of, of fuel and air uh, in, in that induction system. And as a result, the rear cylinders tend to run leaner and the front cylinders tend to run richer just because of the topology of the, of, of the induction system. You can improve the mixture distribution in those continental carbureted engines by reducing the droplet size of the fuel in the fuel-air mixture. And there's, there's a couple of ways of, 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 that you can do that. One is to use a little bit of carb heat. If you push warm air through the carburetor, it tends to atomize the fuel better. Don't do it on the ground because you don't want to be breathing unfiltered air on the ground where there's a lot of dirt. Let me interrupt real quickly. So I'm in southern Arizona. Uh, today's going to be 102 or something like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> will I get it? Will I still get any? I mean, in the air, it'll be, I don't get very high. So it's still going to be 80 probably flying. We're talking just a tiny bit, maybe. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, if, if the OAT is, is, is real warm, you, you, that, that improves the situation anyway. You might not, not need a little carb heat if, if it's real hot out. The other trick is, to operate not at totally wide open throttle, but to back the throttle off just a little bit to cock the, the throttle butterfly in the carburetor and induce a little bit of turbulence into the airflow. Because tur turbulent airflow going through the carburetor also improves uh, atomization of the fuel. And when I say it improves atomization, it, it basically means that the, the droplet size is smaller and so it turns corners better. And that's really what, what we're trying to achieve. With a light combing, you don't really need to worry so much about that because there aren't any real corners to, to, to turn. Everything comes up like as a big, a big spider from the center out to the cylinders. And so the, there's not much opportunity for centrifugal separation in the way the light combing uh, induction system is built. Plus the light combing carburetor is bolted to the bottom of the oil pan, so everything's preheated anyway. You sort of get automatic carb heat even when you don't turn it on to some extent. So like I say, it should be relatively effortless to run Lena Peak in, 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 the, in the Lycoming powered airplane, but in the, uh, 
Cessna 140 with a with a C85 Continental, uh, you might need to do a little bit of work in order to um, to get the mixture distribution good enough that that even the the richest cylinders are on the lane side of peak, and the richest cylinders typically be the front couple of cylinders. And the technique then is, as you said in the past, is to lean it until it stumbles and just barely get it happy again. Yeah, that's. The, I mean, if, in the absence of sophisticated engine instrumentation, that's, that's that's about the best the best way you can do it. Yeah, have you tried it, Dave? I, I played around with it a little bit, but I didn't have any way of validating what I was doing other than looking at plug color and. My experience is that it takes a big change before it's going to be shown on the plug. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I really didn't know if I was. Yeah. Also, an, an, another thing to consider is that it kind of depends on what altitude you're flying. But if you're if you're flying at at you know say above six or seven thousand feet, the engine isn't producing enough power for you to hurt anything, no matter what you do with the mixture control. Well, density uh, altitude-wide, I'm probably at that altitude, but I rarely get more than, I mean, my field altitude's 2,400. Right. You know, if I get more than 4,000 AGL, yeah. uh, I, yeah. I bring Kleenex with me. Right, but, yes. but, 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 the, but the, the engine doesn't know about AGL. It knows about yeah. MSL. Yeah. <laughs> it really knows about density altitude. So, so and, you can't And you probably it. have yes. plenty of density altitude with those temperatures, so... The chances are that it's that that you really don't have to worry about operating inside the red box, even if your if your mixture distribution isn't all that good, because the engine just isn't putting out enough power to that that, that you're going to hurt anything, no matter what the mixture is. Thank you all very much. Thanks for everything you do for general aviation. It's as you were talking about recently, finding mechanics that want to work on GA airplanes is getting harder and harder, and you guys are a great resource. Thank you. And we have fun. We do have a lot of That's fun. That's the best part. All right. Thanks for calling. Thanks, Dave. See ya. Our next question is from Steve, who's ready for our unleaded future. Welcome to the show, Steve. Hi. Thanks for having me. Love the podcast. Um, I've been a listener since the very beginning. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. So we're starting to hear more and more about unleaded fuels reaching the aviation marketplace. Um, And recently, two airports in Santa Clara County, California, stopped selling 100 low lead fuel entirely. And I think they sell just Swift UL 94 there now. And GAMI is close to bringing their G100 UL unleaded fuel on the market as well. So I was just wondering what your thoughts were about these new fuels. If you flew your personal aircraft into an airport offering, you know, Swift UL94, the GAMI fuel, and 100 low lead, which would you use for your own personal aircraft, you know, assuming that your aircraft engines were on the approved list? Um, would you hesitate to use one of these new fuels? And the second question, um, as you all know, there's been volumes written about how to operate the mixture knob. As a former Cirrus owner, um, we all mostly worshipped at the altar of Lena Peak in order to minimize, you know, the buildup of lead on exhaust valves. So if you're using an unleaded fuel now, how should we operate that mixture knob to maximize engine longevity if we're not so concerned about the harmful effects of lead? Well, I'd go with the uh, no lead 100 in a heartbeat, and I fly a Cirrus. 
Wouldn't bother but me it, a bit. It, it will probably be at least a year before you can get it, and probably longer than that. But there's so many benefits to the unleaded fuel. But but yeah, if if you if unleaded fuel that is approved for your engine is available, I would absolutely use it. If your engine will is okay for 94 UL, I would absolutely use it. Mine isn't. Mine would not qualify to run on 94 UL, but whenever G100 UL becomes available, I, I would definitely use it. And I would not change my leaning procedure one bit. Running Lena Peak is, is 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 not done because of lead, although it does help with minimizing lead buildup, but that's not the, the reason we do it. We do it because it's it's cleaner and cooler and more efficient and all good all good stuff. And it's a lot lot easier on your engine. It's much kinder and gentler to your engine to run Lena Peak. Yeah. Ditto. I mean, Mike said it all. It's it's just better for your engine to run Lena Peak and the unleaded fuel when it was um when when the STC came to Gammy um, back at AirVenture, um, we were all jumping for joy. We were oh, at yeah. the announcement, all three of us, and we were very excited about it because of all the maintenance implications. It's just going to make our engines much easier to maintain and and eliminate a lot of the problems that we have with sticking valves and lead deposits in the engine. But unfortunately, the STC that was announced at AirVenture had an approved model list that only included low compression engines, the engines that would, would have run on 94UL just fine. And GAMI's been waiting for approval for high compression engines. Um, and as I understand it, the ACO in Wichita, who's in charge of this, is all ready to sign it off, but headquarters is telling him to hold off. And they've created some sort of advisory panel to look at it or something like that. So it's just a bureaucratic hold on it. And even w once it's approved, and we don't know how long it's going to be till the, the FAA allows the signature to be put on the piece of paper, then there's just this huge problem of getting it produced and getting it deployed to the field. And, and there's a, a lot of logistics problems in doing that. So it's going to be a while before that fuel is going to be uh, um, available. And I wouldn't be surprised if two of the very first places it's available are those two Santa Clara <laughs> yeah. airports. Very cool. Thanks for coming on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah. See you soon. Our next question is from Mike, who for all our mixture talks, and he still wonders why we never talk about leaning and such in the descent. Welcome to the show, Mike. Thank you, Paul. And thanks, everybody, for taking my call. Uh, just by, by way of background, my flying over a couple decades has been in 152s, a few thousand feet MSL, where if the CFI taught me anything about lit, uh, leaning, which is the if, it was just, you know, look at the uh, the tack, adjust it here, the, the typical stuff, and CHTs weren't even a topic of discussion uh, the last two, three years or so, uh, I've gotten pretty active in SR-22s, doing a little bit of, um, of flying uh, decathlons and satabrias too for fun. 
And the uh, I'd like to say the instruction I'm getting from four different CFIs has got my head spinning more than snap rules are. So, and it seems to be all around the descent. So here here we go. Two instructors say, you know, these are my SR22 guys. Come time for descent, set the power to forty percent descent rate, kind of according to the uh, flight profile. And, you know, pay attention to the mixture a little bit, but hey, they're going to run cool anyway. Don't worry about it. Not, not much you can do anyway. Another instructor um, just more recently is, is almost panicked. You got to take care of these cylinders by watching out for shock cooling here. Let's, let's keep the, the power at 60%. Uh, again, we've got to uh, still fly the airplanes, so pay attention to that descent profile. But we got to keep those cylinders warm, and we are blistering down that, that uh, approach. And uh, he said, hey, this is a great opportunity to make up for uh, the time <laughs> we lost in climb anyway. Yeah, uh, yeah. As long as we don't like get my the turbulence. Yeah. yeah, don't worry about it. And here's the final view. So my uh, aerobatics instructor, we're done with a lesson, and uh, we power back to near idle point towards the airport. And he has me getting a pretty uh, nose low descent. Ask him about, uh, is he worried about you know, the uh, the temps, don't worry about them. We need to get lots of air over those uh, cylinders and cool them down a little bit. So could be me. I could be missing the nuance. But what's your guys' thoughts on the importance of CHT management uh, during descent and some operating guidelines to, to consider to get that? There's so much to talk about. Yeah, there's no there's no problem getting the cylinders cool. <laughs> yeah, <that's... laughs> the issue is how rapidly you make changes. It's always good to make changes relatively slowly, but you don't have to make them as slowly as I used to think. Back, back, back in the day, before we had engine monitors and before we had all this good instrumentation and stuff, I you know, became an adherent of the reduced manifold pressure two inches every two minutes school and stuff. And then once I got good instrumentation in my airplane and I could see what the cool down rates were, I realized that 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 was not necessary. And and so I when I fly my plane nowadays, I happily yank manifold pressure back five inches at a time and, and nothing terrible happens. I do have a a cool down alarm set on my engine monitor that goes off anytime the cool down rate is more than 30 degrees per minute. Now as a re- as as a reference, Lycoming recommends limiting cool down to 60 degrees a minute. So my 30 degree per minute alarm is is set very, very conservatively. And the only time it ever goes off is if I'm doing some sort of an extreme slam dunk maneuver because ATC did something bad to me. <laughs> but But unless I'm yanking the throttle from high power to idle, the alarm nut just doesn't go off. So it turns out that the shock cooling stuff is not nearly as big a deal as as we used to believe it was. And you're flying like that when you're flying aerobatics. You're yanking the throttle and going to idle, right, in certain maneuvers. Okay, you are you worried about shock cooling while you're in a hammerhead? You know, I, I agree with Mike. I used to worry about shock cooling a lot, and JPI has something that'll flash how many, you know, but I... I mean, I like doing power descents because I like going fast and it's kind of fun and I don't like wasting time. But I also I, I try to treat my engine gently 
I don't yank, but I definitely am not worried about the power or, or the cooling rate. I'm not worried about that. I've never seen anything that would damage anything. I've never heard of anybody having shock cooling damage on an engine. Yeah, there's people will talk about, oh, that shock cooling damage engine chops, but they can't define how it happened. Like, <laughs> so well, how do you know that shock cooling? Oh, we just see that all the time, but they still don't have the reference. I've never heard of anyone saying, you know, you pull the power back to like 40% for descent. I, I would never do. I usually don't change the power setting. My dad was one of those, you know, we're going <laughs> to, okay, don't, don't fly like this. I'm not saying you should do this, but we would keep cruise power on until we're like turning into the pattern. And yeah, but and, you start your descent early. I mean, you know, if you no. have to get down and you need to, you know, have the room, oh, you that's pull true. the power. Yeah. I mean, just do what you need to do to sure. fly the airplane. Yeah, I, I just do power settings as needed, and I'll leave the power up in a descent, as long as the air is smooth. Absolutely. And, and pull uh, the power back only when I need to. And you know, My standard answer down. when people say, well, what do you do in a descent? I say, I push the nose down. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. End yeah. of subject. <laughs> if, if you have the room, if you have the uh, space and the luxury. But if, if ATC holds you up too high and you're like jammed, you, you got to pull I pull the throttle way back and put the nose down and shock cool. Well, let me make another another point because you, you were talking a little bit about leaning procedure in the descent. You know, I, when, when you're flying a normally aspirated engine that, that, doesn't, that doesn't have an altitude compensating system on it, you wind up progressively leaning in the climb as you get higher and higher. And in descent, you do the opposite. You, you, you would need to progressively enrich in. But in the descent, it's really easy because if you forget, the engine reminds you. <laughs> you know, because yeah. if, if you leave the mixture control alone yeah. as you descend, the engine will get leaner and leaner until it gets lean enough that it starts telling you that it's unhappy. And then you say, oh, yeah, I forgot. I'm going to push the picture control it a little bit. It doesn't remind you to lean as you climb, but it does remind you to enrich it as you descend. So it makes it really easy. And, and I do have one caveat to that, though, Mike. And I, I worry about this, and I do pay attention to my mixture on final approach. If you've left it too lean, but you haven't pulled the throttle all the way out, it might not quit. But if you are at very short final and you're like, oh, I got to get down, you pull that throttle out, you could kill the engine at a bad time. So I try to make sure that I, and, and they always, I was always instructed to richen the engine um, on final because you might be doing a go around and you want the, the fuel for the go around. But I've also noticed that there's sometimes when you could actually, you know, cause the engine to stumble at a very inopportune time if you've forgotten to put the mixture in the whole way down. Yeah, the, the final gumps check uh, on downwind really helps in that regard. Yeah. Well, this is making a lot of sense. It just so happens my aerobatic instructor is an AMP as well, and, and he's the least worried about uh, shock cooling. Uh, and the one that is, uh, he's a, a phenomenal CFI, 22,000 plus hours, but uh, maybe from an aero without CHTs and yeah. um, you know the advanced uh, diagnostics we've, we've got today. So. I don't know this is starting to uh, connect the dots. This is helpful. Yeah. Well, I'm 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 a, I'm a reformed shock cooling worrier. <laughs> and uh we just worried about it way more than we needed to back before we had good information. Fantastic. Guys, thanks so much. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for being on the show, Mike. Yep. See ya. 
Okay, our next question is from Hannah, another aerobatics lover. Go ahead, Hannah. Hi, guys. So uh, my name is Hannah, and uh, my question for Ask the AMPs includes uh, or involves aerobatic airplanes. So uh, I've got a super decathlon that I really love, and uh, airplanes are very expensive. So I've been uh, flying aerobatics a lot. But as I start to move into more sports figures, uh, I'm really worried about the stress that I'm putting on the plane because it's my baby. And every time I do a really hard pull, I just, I know it's meant to handle it, but it's still, it worries me a lot that this is all going to accumulate into a big problem. And I've already replaced the hub. I've had a lot of propeller issues and I just worry that all of this is going to add up and be very expensive. And so I'm wondering if there's anything that I can keep doing while I fly and while I take care of it just to maintain it in the long term. So I, so I avoid any kind of long-term damage, if that makes any sense. Well, don't pull more than five Gs, <laughs> which, which is your rated, uh, what are your five plus five minus, oh, no, plus six minus five. Yeah, yeah. That You know, the only thing I could think of, sportsman isn't that tough. You're not doing any snap rolls yet. You're still just doing some spins, some inverted, you know, but... Um, it's not getting into the heavy stuff. The snaps are really what start taxing the airframe and really pushing the engine. I've heard people say that snap rolls will like stress the bearings on the crankshaft. I, I defer to my colleagues here on that. But the one thing I will say is that when you start flying harder aerobatics, I would keep an eye on the engine mounts um, because that's the flexible portion between the airframe and the engine. And it's taking a lot of that stress of the gyroscopics and what the engine's doing. And uh, people tend to let those slide. Uh, it sounds like your aircraft's pretty new. So the mounts are probably in great shape, but you can kind of just keep an eye on those and see what kind of abuse they're absorbing from all your... Colleen, it sounded to me like, and correct me if I'm wrong, that Hannah was was particularly concerned about the propeller for some. I was going to ask that well, as well. The yeah. issues that she had reported that you you said you replaced a hub with the prop. What I was did the issues it, with the prop. Yeah, I don't know the mechanical. They explained it to me, and I can't recite it again. But I had it. I don't want to say explode, but it did completely spew <laughs> oil everywhere, oh, yeah. and they had to replace it. And they said it was very bad, and that it was the mechanic that looked at it said that I should not have kept flying on it, and. Wow. It was it was not good. Was this the aluminum prop or the MT prop? Really interesting. Did they did they blame aerobatics for this explosion? I don't know. I think it's just uh, it wasn't the seals breaking. It was just this. Uh, I lost most of my oil in it. It spewed it all over the windshield, and I had to land at Salinas, and it was stuck there for a while. Wow, and so I think from that experience, I'm just now I'm since I had to pay for it, I'm kind of yeah. worried about what else am I doing wrong? And I don't think any of the air you were flying primary, yeah, just primary. But I've been doing training in sportsmen, so yeah. I have been. Yeah. Well, well, I guess the only question I would have is: Are you aware of of ever encountering any sort of an RPM overspeed, anything yeah, over redline? I have noticed that, and it was before the prop, but it was before that, and it wasn't a lot, but it would be um, while diving, and I would see that, but how much? I mean, I don't remember off the top of my head. Hmm. I mean, if uh, what we say ten percent is that would be okay, but well, but I'm I'm thinking more. I mean, you're you're thinking in terms of, of effects on the engine in terms of overspeed. And I'm, I'm thinking about the propeller because if the 
propeller and the propeller governor are working correctly, it shouldn't be possible to overspeed. Yeah. I have seen it redline before. I have a digital. Yeah. Well, well I mean, red redline's red line's normal. A, time, a little bit over redline is not a big deal, but I just want to make sure you don't have a regulation problem with the with the propeller where it's not it's not capable of maintaining acceptable RPM in a dive. Another thing that I have noticed is uh, kind of a surging in a dive that I'll hear from it. And I don't know if that's just the, I mean, I'd, I'm not very mechanically inclined at all. So I don't know if that's normal. Huh. Have you noticed your oil pressure? Is it constant? It drops. To what? In the dive. To yeah. Yes, it, it drops. I uh, think... And then, so the Christian inverted system at certain attitudes, it's kind of in limbo between the states of bottom of the engine or top of the engine. And it might be in the vertical. That's when it's doing that. You might be seeing a little bit of starvation, which may affect the governing. Exactly. Yeah, yeah you have to you have Definitely. to have you have to have good oil pressure in order for the for the prop governor to do its job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I'm trying to think, uh, do they? Because mine's mounted vertical on the firewall, like most of them are, my, my Christian system and my Skybolt. Uh, and I think they do that because you're either upside down or right side up, but you don't spend much time in the vertical. I don't know if they, if there's an option to mount it on an angle so it, it will actually continue to govern or, or continue to pro- provide oil pressure, even in, a, a, you know, in, in the cardinal directions, up, down, or straight and level, or upside down, straight and level. I don't remember if, if there's an option to put like a wedge behind it so that the Christian system is actually at an angle to one of those flight attitudes. I, I, I'm not sure. I'd have to look at the literature. Um, are you on the Acro Exploder or in the IAC? Or you can pose this question to the, they have this at the blog basically where people talk, or you could pose it straight to the magazine just went through my head. But, you know, and and there's a lot of good tech people that if this has been a problem with other Super Ds in the past, they can give you their guidance. And it's a great um, resource. Um, you might ask that question and explain that you're having those issues in the dive. Because, yeah, if you're losing, temporarily losing oil pressure in the dive, that's definitely going to affect your prop and the governing qualities. Yeah, well, it was great to meet you and good luck and um, great airplane. Thank you for calling. Thank you guys so much for the help. Okay. Have a good one. See Hannah. Well, that's a wrap on another great podcast. What did we get right? And more importantly, what did we get wrong? We'd love to hear from you. So please keep sending us those tricky questions and try to stump us. Send your questions and comments to podcasts at aopa.org. Fly safely and have fun, and hopefully we'll see you at Oshkosh. See you there. Bye, everybody. Bye.